As you're seated, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You know, a lot of folks get really put off by um, the pastor when they hear that he's going to preach a sermon on money. And uh, a lot of pastors get really squirmish when they think about having to preach a sermon on money. And the reason being that um, it's, it's really the same, <laughs> whether you're the pastor preaching or the person in the pew. There's this perception from, from some folks that the pastor is always wanting to talk about money because he wants it. <laughs> like, put your money in the offering plate when it comes around so that I get paid, right? And, uh, and to be fair, we've certainly seen abuses in this area where churches have done scandalous things with money, and in particular, pastors have done scandalous things with money. Nevertheless, I want to be really clear, this is the sermon where I show you that you should give your tithes and offerings so that I get paid. (laughs) Um, Most awkward sermon ever, right? I mean, like you could see that as really self-serving. But now that we've got the awkwardness out of the way, yes, we give because we're commanded to. We give tithes and offerings We should also give because the Holy Spirit is in us and working in our hearts to make us to be generous and we want to see the the kingdom advance and and we're commanded to give to our our local church for that purpose. The passages like 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 through 15 that we're going to be in this morning show us that one thing that we must do with our giving, with tithes and offerings that you'll put in those plates as you leave today, or buckets, we're using buckets now so we don't have to pass plates. One of the things that we do with that money is Pay Matt and Michael. <laughs> and uh, it's not lost on me that this also is Pastor Appreciation Month. And you better believe that our elders knew it too. And they looked ahead at this week's text and gave our love gifts last week because they knew the text that was coming this morning. Um, I'm only joking. We have really great elders that are thinking through those things. And, and I just want to tell you thank you for last week for the love offering, the gift that you guys gave us for pa- pastor appreciation. This is incredibly kind of you guys, and, uh, and we're appreciative and, uh, for that gift, but also for paying us monthly so that we have the joy of devoting ourselves to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, to shepherding and leading you as Poplar Spring Baptist Church. Um, man, what a joy, what a privilege that is, and I don't tell you that enough. And so please hear today's sermon as we jump into the text. Please hear today's sermon as an affirmation of what you're already doing, at least the, 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 the payment part, the supporting your pastors financially. And then also hear it as an admission to continue to do that. Long after Matt James is dead and gone, you'll have some other pastor one day and pay that guy. Pay him really well and generous as you have us because it's the biblical and right thing to do. Before we jump into the text, though, and hear Paul make a case for how to care for our elders and our pastors. It's more than just pay, by the way. We're going to see that in the text. Um, Let me remind you of the context, because we can't disconnect what Paul is saying from who Paul is saying it to, and that's important for us. And so as you read 1 Timothy, you may think, man, Paul's really just jumping around from topic to topic, and he seems to be chasing a lot of of rabbits in, in in his argument here, but that's not the case. Paul's making one argument, And I showed it to you back in chapter 3, verse 15, his thesis statement. We've already said it this morning in our prayer time. Paul is showing us, chapter 3, verse 15, how to behave as God's household. He says that very explicitly. I'm writing to you to show you how to behave as the family of God, the the church, the pillar and buttress of truth. And 
Since that's the case, think about then what he's done. After he said this is his point in writing, he's shown us how to identify church leaders, pastors, and deacons. He did that in chapter 3. He's shown us why and how to train for godliness, chapter 4, the motivation that we would have for training to, to be God's family. He's shown us how to relate to one another as a family, even with our generational differences. Remember last week, father, mother, brother, sister. He's telling us how we relate to one another as a family. That's chapter 5. And then last week, we spent a good deal of time. He showed us how to particularly care for one group within that family for widows. And we spent last week walking through that. What does it look like to care for widows within the the family of God? And so the sermon today is not disconnected from that. Paul is saying here the same thing that he said with the last several weeks. This is a family, and I'm going to give you another group within that family and how you care for them. I've already told you what to look for in them, right, as he gave us the qualifications in chapter 3. Now I'm going to tell you how to care for them once you have them. So if, you had, if we had more time last week, you could have really added this as a third point to last week's sermon. If you remember last week's sermon, we had two points. Love everyone in the church as a family. And then we had the second point from last week. Uh, care for those in the church that have no family. Widows. This could really be the third point, and if you wanted to keep that sort of theme going, care for those in the church who lead your family. It could be the third point to last week's sermon. I also want to remind you of the point of all of this. Our family relationships, our care for widows, our training for godliness, our care for our pastors, all of it is done so that the gospel is on full display. That's, That's the point. That's what we're We're working toward all this for it. It's why we strive to have these things done and done rightly. These relationships are a billboard for the gospel. And this is just another way. Paul's going to add on here, elders, pastors, and your care for them as one more way in which that's the case. One more billboard that you have to show the world a picture of the gospel. So four reminders that we have in chapter 5. We're going to finish out chapter 5 this morning. All of it deals with elders. So let me give you the four sort of points this morning, and then we'll jump in. Number one, honor faithful pastors. You'll see these on the screen as we walk through, so if you don't get them right now, it's okay. Honor faithful pastors. Number two, protect faithful pastors. Number three, discipline unfaithful pastors. And number four, select faithful pastors. So let's go. Number one, honor faithful pastors. I hope you're there with me. First Timothy chapter five, we'll start in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, as a pastor, it may be really tempting to read those two verses and see double honor here and want to try to convince you that the interpretation of that is double pay, right? It's not the case. It's not what Paul is getting at. He's not giving us a prescription for how much to pay a pastor, Certainly those things change with time. He's actually meaning something quite different. What he means there when he says double honor is a, it's a twofold honor. It's sort of two sides to the same coin. It's honor your pastors and elders in the following two ways. They're not disconnected from each other. They, they're, they're two ways in which you should honor them. You honor them with respect and you honor them with payment. So there's the two, two, twofold honor. Now I was tempted to, re, re, to do right here because you know how my my mind works, respect and uh, remuneration, right? Two R R words. Uh, But I'm pretty sure I didn't say it right, and I definitely don't know how to spell it, so we're just going to go with payment. And you'll just have to forgive me for not making them both R words. So respect and 
payment. We'll look at these both and, and see what Paul means. But as he says double honor, that's the two things he's getting at it. You see that as you continue, verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So there is Paul's defense for double honor. And why would understand it as being respect and payment? We'll look at both of them. Look at payment first, though. That seems to be where, or at least is most obvious. Paul quotes two unquestioned authorities as evidence for paying your pastors. He first quotes Moses, and then he quotes Jesus. He quotes Moses first. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's not the only time that Paul has said this. He says it again in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Verses 7 through 12, he gives actually a little bit more explanation in in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman would plow in hope of the, of the thresher, uh, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? The idea here that Paul is saying in Corinth, now he's repeating in Ephesus through this letter to Timothy, and the point that Moses was making all the way back in the Old Testament, it's the same. It's making one point for us. When oxen, and this is, if it's really strange to you to hear about oxen and, and muzzling and threshing out, I get that. That's, a, that's an agricultural thing that they would have been familiar with, but probably is not language that we're using every day. So here's what was going on. When an ox, the beast of burden, would be used to, to tread out the grain, to literally stomp on the grain until the hull is broken down and it falls away and the chaff is blown away. You've heard that language before in Scripture. He was not to muzzle the ox as he labored. And the reason being that the ox is working all day long, he's treading this grain, he could stop and eat some of the product, eat some of the grain, some of the product that he was helping to create. And Paul's saying the same thing is true for pastors. Otherwise, we're treating those who minister the word of God among us worse than a beast of of burden would be treated. That's the point that he's getting at in in quoting Moses here in the Old Testament. And then he quotes Jesus. Some of your Bibles will have this next statement in red because it's it's literally a quote from from Jesus' lips. It's, the laborer deserves his wages. It's a word-for-word quote uh, from Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 verse 7 Side note here, this is not our main point, but it's, it's really interesting to me and incredible, really, that Paul is introducing a quote from the Old Testament and a quote from the New Testament with Scripture says. Like, well, Matt, I, don't, I don't get why that's really cool. Why is that important? Well, it shows us that as early as 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, the Gospels were being regarded as Holy Scripture. They knew that those, uh, those words were written by men inspired by God as early as Paul's letter to Timothy. All that to say, you can trust this book. You can trust the Bible that you have in your hands, the ones that's in the back of the pew. That's God's Word. Paul believed it as early as this letter to Timothy. It's incredible. Anyways, back so what we have here. So he, we have it from Moses, we have it from Jesus, we have it from Paul to Ephesus, and we have it from Paul to Corinth. Churches, honor your pastors by paying them appropriately. Kent Hughes in his commentary tells about a pastor 
who arrived at this church out in the country somewhere, and a couple families in that church took it on themselves to supply the, the pastor with eggs and milk. So kind, right? The pastor was blessed by this. Man, what a, what a heartfelt show of affection for their new pastor. It, it blessed his heart that they would do this, they would serve him in this way with the eggs and the milk in such a practical way. Until he noticed the church budget and that the cost of those gifts were being deducted from his salary. <laughs> that's not what Paul's talking about here. Um, that's not what he's getting at. So the question then, what is, if that's not it, what is an honoring stipend? What is an honoring wage for a pastor? Well, the text is not specific here. So let me offer maybe a general rule of thumb that I think should help us, but help churches in general, help you long after I'm dead and gone, think about how you pay your pastor. Uh, I don't think Paul here is referring to extravagant financial compensation. In fact, the very next chapter Paul's going to warn us about materialism and the desire to be rich. So he's, he's not talking about extravagant comp- compensation here. At the same time, I do think it's a call for God's people to be generous to their pastors. He's urging them to take care of their pastors. And so the balance there leads us to, I believe, a truth that would be something like this. That, that pastors should be paid on the same scale as others in the congregation of the same age, of the same education level, of the same level of experience, of the same responsibilities and equivalents. And and so they're they're not to live above the congregation, as we see. Certainly there are cases like that happening all over our our country. And not to live below the congregation and struggle financially. And we certainly see, sadly, that happening even closer to home around us in several churches. And so I think this double honor means pay your pastors, be generous, and you certainly are a church family. And so hear me say thank you for that. The second side of that coin, so it's payment, but it's also respect. There's a certain level of respect expected for the pastoral role and the role of, of pastor. And you see this in the rest of what Paul says. Uh, this is not what we see in the, the vestments, right, and the, the scepters and the pomp and circumstance of the high church tradition. It's sort of was meant to make you respect, but that's not what we're talking about here. And it's it's not what we see in the desire that some insist on being called reverend or very reverend or, and this is sadly the case, the most very honorable reverend doctor so-and-so. That's not what we're talking about here. I wish I was kidding, but I've I've literally seen those titles. So what is this respect? This respect is established and authenticated by the work You'll notice that in verses 17 and 18. It says labor in 17 or 18 or some version of it. And then literally that word in the, in the Greek is, is toil, to work hard, Paul says. Uh, Paul's teaching us that we should honor those who labor, toil, work hard in leading the church through ruling well and preaching and teaching. He spells it out a bit more in detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He says, we ask you, brothers... Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So to esteem them very highly in love. He's defining for us what that sort of respect looks like. Whether you like their personality, whether you think they look funny, maybe they smell funny, Maybe they've said something in the past that offended you, it hurt your feelings, it rubbed you wrong. It doesn't matter. Esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because you've been commanded to. Why? Because they labor among you. 
They toil among you. They work hard for your sake, for the sake of your soul, for the sake of teaching and preaching you the word of God. And that's worthy of respect. Not that they as as a person are, are some inherent worth, but the fact that they labor to give you the word of God. Before we move on from this list, uh, or this, this observation of, of this twofold honor that's to be given to, to faithful pastors, I want you to note that Paul also gives us the standard or the conditions for gauging what a faithful pastor is. There's two of them in verse 17. You'll notice them as I read. It says, let elders who rule well be considered of, uh, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you see the two conditions, right? Rule well, your translations may say, a good leader, that kind of, of, of elder that deserves double honor is one who rules well, who is a good leader among you. And so often, I, I want to just maybe mention this, I think we often hear good leader or rule well, and we immediately think of like the business world, where many of you live and operate and your vocation is in that world. And so I get why you think that way, I'm not blaming but I understand why you think that way. We, we think about a CEO, right, that's efficient, that is successful, that has led a company to, you know, massive, expansive growth. And that's how we want to evaluate pastors on those sorts of metrics. We can't think that way because the church is not a business. The church is a family. We, chapter 3, verse 15, we're the household of God, an, an outpost for the gospel, a hospital for the broken. We, we're a different sort of thing than a business. So think about how you evaluate how well you're doing as a family. That would be a, a more appropriate way than how a business is evaluated. So think about your metrics and how you're evaluating good or ruling well. And I think when you do that, you have to look no further than what Paul's already said in this same letter in chapter 3, right? He gives you qualifications And so if the pastor elder has been faithful in those qualifications and in those ways, then he's doing it well. He's doing it good. He's being a good leader. And then we trust God with the results, the growth, the change, the appearances, where it heads, where it goes, where it leads. Because if he's doing those things faithfully, God will provide those things in his time. Second condition, so that's condition number one, rule well, lead uh, well. Second condition, he labors in preaching and teaching. Now, this is certainly not saying that that's all the pastor should be doing. If you look at the rest of the epistles, there are many more things that a pastor is doing. Uh, And so we shouldn't get the idea from this that 168 hours of his week should be with his nose in his Bible, preparing, studying to teach and preach. But an elder should be giving a large amount of his time to the ministry of the word and prayer. And his preaching should be reflective of that. If he gets up to preach and he's ill-prepared, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he seems clueless, he's contradicting himself, he's probably not spending his time in the Word. And so as we evaluate, are, are these things happening? Is he ruling, leading well, and is he preaching, teaching, is he laboring to, to explain the Word of God to you, that the Holy Spirit might transform your life? So, honor faithful pastors, and that's how we know what a faithful pastor looks like. Number two, protect faithful pastors. This is verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, a couple things to note here in this one very straightforward verse. First, Paul says this in a way that we should expect these sort of accusations or charges to come. Notice that he doesn't say, if a charge comes against an elder. He says, do not admit a charge. The implication there is is not that if it comes, but when it comes. It will come. And when it comes, be careful. You may ask, well, wait, I, th- I 
thought elders should be above, above reproach. Based on chapter 3 and those qualifications for an elder, shouldn't he be above reproach? So why are there charges at all? That's a great question. And certainly there should be less accusations regarding these men because they should be above reproach if they've been vetted well and, and, and brought before the church as they should have been. But the nature of pastoral ministry is such that the pastor is in people's lives, knows intimate details about how they've sinned against their spouse, knows intimate details about their lives and their sin struggles, their habits. He's ministering to people in, in sin-filled situations and sticky situations and brokenness. And Satan, our enemy, knows this as well. And so pastors are frequently the target of, of accusation and frustration and and some of that same brokenness. John Calvin in the 16th century, I think this is just pastoral ministry today. No, it's not just today. In the 16th century, Calvin said this, for there are none more liable to slanders and misrepresentations than godly teachers. Though they perform their duty correctly, so as to not commit any error, whatever, they never escape a thousand criticisms. As a result, we should be cautious when an elder is accused. This is really what Paul's getting at in verse, nine, uh, verse 19. Accusations are going to come. We should not be surprised when they do, but we should be cautious when they do. This is why he gives us the practical instruction, let there be two or three witnesses. And I want to be really careful here and say, this doesn't mean that we ignore serious allegation, right? That, that we put our heads in the sound when, when people come forward and there's a, a concern, there's a serious claim, but we just stick our head in the sand and ignore it because we want to be obedient to this. No, it just means that we're careful to vet those concerns privately before making them a public matter. We want to be careful with any of those accusations and charges. And I want to remind you of the why. The purpose behind all of this that we have to keep coming back to we're zealous to protect the reputation of elder pastor, because, not because they're some special class of, of citizen or some special class of Christian. The reason we do this is, is more importantly because the church, chapter 3, verse 15, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we don't want to display the glory of God in a diminished way. We don't want to hinder the advancement of the gospel in any way. And this happens when we give the community the perception that godly leaders can't be trusted. Because we too flippantly, we too quickly, or in haste, brought a charge against a man and smeared his reputation in the community when there was no truth to it. And so we're careful. By God's grace, we, we eliminate this, this situation of unfounded accusations. We put an end to the unhelpful, ungodly criticisms that bring down the reputation of, of the man who God's placed to, to lead his bride, his family, through the ministry of the word. Number three. Discipline unfaithful pastors. Discipline unfaithful pastors. This is verses 20 and 21. Look at the, the text with me. It says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. These verses show us that when there is a credible evidence, uh, there is credible evidence based on two or three witnesses, then it should be taken with utmost seriousness. This command, if taken serious, listen church, if, if this command were taken serious, so much heartache and brokenness and abuse at the hands of ungodly, sinful, and immoral pastors could have been, could have been avoided if we would take this serious. We must take the sin, the, the persistent sin, the text tells us, 
of pastors with more seriousness for the same reason that they will receive more accusation. Because they are involved in the intimate details of people's lives. They're counseling people through brokenness. And because of that, because of these relationships that they have with many people across the body of Christ, when these sorts of accusations come up and they're confirmed by two or three witnesses and they're serious and they're persistent, they must be dealt with with more seriousness and with more public uh, recognition. And so when Paul says, make this a public issue in the presence of all, that's exactly what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at. And here's the thing. What, is, what does Paul mean when he says that? I don't think Paul has in mind every single sin that an elder commits. Yes, every single sin is infinitely serious and is a sin against the holy God, but not every single sin is worthy of a public rebuke, right? So, for example, if two or three of you guys leave church here today and, and you go downtown Bun and you catch me walking across the street at Farmer's Table and I'm jaywalking, there's probably not a need for a public rebuke there, right? Like, there should be a certain magnitude to the sin that is publicly rebuked such that the elder can no longer serve as an example to the flock in ways that are consistent with 1 Timothy 3 that we saw already, right? If, if, if that elder has lost his ability to be that example publicly because of public sin, it's worthy of public rebuke, right? So if you see me jaywalking, come up to me with by yourself or two or three witnesses say, Matt, I saw you cross the street. You are not in a crosswalk. I'll probably say, you know what? You're right. I was in a hurry. Would you forgive me? And that's where that ends. But if it's persistent, and that's what Paul's going to get at. If he doesn't give us the specific list of sins that he considers qualifying for this sort of public rebuke, he gives us a hint in verse 20 at what sort of thing would qualify. He says, those who persist in sin. This implies an unwillingness to repent, a pattern of sin. I don't think I'm a patterned jaywalker. If I am, I want to repent of it. I don't want to persist in it, right? I'm making a joke a little bit, but the seriousness of this isn't a joke. What Paul's getting at here, the point, he's saying the reason I would command you to do this goes back to the purpose in all of this, the gospel's on display. And if the community, the lost world around, looks at the church and has a distrust or has a, a, dis, a, a, a taste in their mouth that, that's, that's flawed for the gospel because of its leadership, that's a problem. So deal with it in a public way such as the world would see. Man, that, that dude's living in sin and the church took it serious, right? Yeah. I want to continue the, the, the point of all this. The gospel's on display. But then Paul gives us two reasons why this sort of public rebuke should take place with unrepentant leaders. And he gives them to us really clearly. First, as a testimony to the, tr- to the truth. Verse 21, Paul is he says, charging Timothy to keep these commands. Again, I'm going to say this a lot in the book of Timothy. Don't, don't miss the context, right? In, in Ephesus, there were false teachers that were unrepentant. They were teaching false doctrine. And, and Paul says they had shipwrecked their faith, these false teachers. And the likelihood is that Timothy, he was probably close to these men. Remember, at this time, the church hasn't been around very long. They probably were together from the beginning, right? They were probably buddies. They were probably the closest people in each other's lives. And so this would not have been comfortable. Nevertheless, Paul says to Timothy, he's charging, I'm commanding you to do this. Why? Because it's evidence that the church is aligned with the truth of God, not picking favorites, not scratching the back of the person who's doing us a favor, not picking uh, sides here. No, in, in every way, we want to be aligned with the truth of God, fulfilling our role as the pillar and buttress of truth. And so we align ourselves with what God said, even when it's not easy, even when it's uncomfortable to do. We must be faithful to his word, no matter how difficult or painful. It's what the testimony to the truth. But there's a second reason that we do this with elders, this public rebuke. 
when there's persistent sin. And he says it clearly in verse 21, because it'll serve as a warning to others. Look at verse 21. As for those who persist in sin, the context there being those elders that persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that, they may, so that the rest may stand in fear. I think so often people hear church discipline, and even in the case like this of public rebuke of an elder, which is a discipline case, they think that the church or its pastors are just out headhunting, right? Like trying to find some sinner that they can pick on. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Those situations happen, whether it's a church discipline situation with a church member or a public rebuke situation with a leader, an elder. Those scenarios happen under three conditions, at least three conditions. When it's confirmed sin by multiple believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, when it's public sin that's smearing the name of Christ and the public witness of the church, and when it's unrepentant sin, which Paul's already said, persistent sin. And so when those three things happen and line up, the church has no choice but to follow through with discipline if it's going to be faithful. I want to show you, though, that, that though that's the case, it's also a grace to you that the church would be faithful in carrying out discipline. It's a grace to you that the church would do this faithfully. And here's what I mean. Let me explain a little bit. The Bible often motivates obedience by pointing us to God's grace, to his kindness. You think Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Christ has liberated us to be free, right? The kindness of God, the grace of God. So then, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. You hear what he's doing there. Obedience, because of the, the kindness of God, he's liberated you, motivates our obedience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, the apostle Paul says. And so we see that grace and kindness lead us to obedience. But that isn't all that leads us to obedience. So often we miss this whole aspect of, of, of God's grace in our lives. Sometimes God motivates us to obedience by fear. And the text that we're in this morning is evidence for that. Verse 21, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that all, the rest, the all, may stand in fear. And Paul wanted uh, the other people, especially other elders, to look at this situation of public rebuke and say, may it never be so with me. God, would you guard my heart? Would you protect my heart? Would you keep me from evil? Would you keep me from the attacks of the evil one? Because I don't ever want to be in that place. And I know in my flesh, it could very well be me. By your grace, would you preserve me? Would you protect me from sin? I think when this, the, the Church 2 movement started up, and the, if you can remember this far back, the Ashley Madison list that came out with all the hookup sites and pastors were on these lists, it brought pastors to a place. I mean, I heard it, and even in our small groups, I wasn't a pastor here then, but in our, in our conversations, I heard pastors praying, God, protect me. I know my sin, I know my flesh, and if not for the grace of God, I could be there on that list. And so this public rebuke does that. It causes fear. It causes us to say, God, would you help? Because I know I need your grace. Listen, that kind of fear that leads to obedience is as much a grace to you as the kindness that leads to obedience. Why? Because the end is the same in both. That you're formed more into the image of Christ. That it, that it, that it leads to the purity of his bride. That it leads to less hindrance of gospel advancement. And so when we think about fear as something... Uh, we often, I think, think about fear as something that can't come from God, right? That, 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 that fear is, is a lack of faith. And oftentimes, misguided, misappropriated fear is a lack of faith. You're not trusting the Lord. You're fearful because you, you're not trusting His sovereignty, His goodness, His providence. But this sort of God-given fear is the opposite. 
It's a healthy fear that God gives us as a grace to us to help us recognize the seriousness of our sin and, and the, the, the fragility of our, our flesh and how quickly we could be falling apart if not but for his grace. And so that's why we do this. It's a grace to one another that we would do this. Number four. Fourth observation here in chapter five. This is verses 22 through 25. We select faithful elders. And this is building, right? Like you can see Paul's logic, his train of thought. The distasteful task of disciplining elders is just something we never want to do. It calls for us to be upfront and have wisdom and great care in the selection of our elders, right? Because if you don't, it could lead to that. That's, that's his logic here. So read with me verse 22. So do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So there's this connection, or it seems to be this connection between the sins of, of others, the, in these elders, in particular the sins that are being rebuked publicly, and the elders that would lay hands on that man to ordain him to the office of elder, pastor. Meaning that your elders here at Poplar Spring, when we question and evaluate and, and, and go through a candidate and present that candidate to you for eldership, we're doing something that has to be, must be taken very seriously. Why? Because there's culpability in our doing it wrong. There's culpability in our doing it with haste, doing it in an unwise manner, skipping over some of the details or brushing some of the things under the rug that we didn't think were square. Why? Because it could lead to this situation where you're having to publicly rebuke that man because he wasn't qualified to be an elder in the first place. These things are connected. And so Paul offers a word of caution here. Now, this may seem like a side note, verse 23, but, but look at it with me. I don't think it's a side note. I think he's getting at being a faithful elder. He's giving him uh, application to what he just said, keep yourself pure. We'll show you in just a second what, what I mean there. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your sake, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Here's why I think this is part of Paul's logic and his train of thought. He just said in verse 22, do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I'm going to remind you again, remember the context in Ephesus, right? This is not disconnected from what's going on in Ephesus. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we learn that there are false teachers in Ephesus. Remember the ones that had shipwrecked their faith. And what were they doing? They were teaching something, but do you remember what that teaching was? If you remember back, they were teaching not to marry, but there's another thing that they were teaching that was errant, that was false. It was that they were teaching people to abstain from foods that God had created to be received with thanksgiving. You remember that? We, we call this false teaching uh, fleshly asceticism. Or maybe now you would hear it more called something like a legalism or something. Some sort of puritanical, I'm going to make myself wholly pure and, and, and that visible to the world around me by doing these legalistic things. I'm going to be more holy because I refuse to do fill in the blank. And that blank can be whatever. And Paul was saying here to Timothy, don't take part in the sins of others. Verse 22, that's what he just said. Don't take part in the sins of others. In particular, those false teachers that he's already referenced in this book that were teaching that God had prohibited things that God had never prohibited, right? And that they, in, in, in their false teaching, thought themselves to be pure because of their abstinence when God didn't say abstain from that thing in the first place. Rather, Timothy, use a little wine to promote good physical health. Now here, Paul's simply concurring with the ancient world's use of wine for medicinal purposes. Hippocrates, if you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take, uh, Hippocrates, that's where they get, that's, that's who it's named after. He taught this, the Jewish Talmud. 
uh, taught this. Plutarch, Pliny, these are ancient sources and documents that, that taught this same thing, that wine could help the stomach. And, and so Paul's just simply here applying that same teaching and the teaching of his day. And here's Paul's logic. Keep yourself pure, Timothy, which means don't adopt the errant asceticism or legalism of false teachers in Ephesus. Now, Paul was certainly not encouraging Timothy to drink too much wine because then he would be disqualifying himself, which is Paul has already said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, right? Not to be drunk with wine, not to be given too much wine. And so, but if it's for good and right reasons, he shouldn't wrongly call it sin. And in fact, he should have some for himself. He would be in effect, think about this, he would in effect be making himself spiritually impure by trying to make himself physically pure by the wrong reasons. This is Pharisaism. That he's holding up these laws and rules for himself and by doing them, thinking he's making himself pure when actually he's showing that he's in fact spiritually impure. Now I want to be clear here because there is application for our day. There's always application for our day when we read the scriptures. And there are a thousand reasons that you today can choose to, to abstain from drinking alcohol. Be a teetotaler, right? Like if you think about through the, the, the rampant alcoholism that devours and, and tears apart families, the, the Surgeon General of our, of our nation's warning as to the, the hazards that it can be to your health, uh, the social evils that come from having, having your, your inhibitions lessened or, or being uh, buzzed or drunk, right? And the things that happen in those contexts. The, the alcohol industry, right? That, that clearly exploits brokenness and broken homes for their own gain, profit. profit. The, the presence, right? Think about us as a body of Christ. The presence within the church of a weaker brother who by your drinking in front of him may be caused to stumble or his growth may be hindered. There are, there are numerous reasons that you can abstain from drinking alcohol. Those reasons aside... Think about the context, what's going on here in, in 1 Timothy. Paul is checking Timothy to be sure that he's not abstaining for the wrong reason, right? Some false sense of purity. And if he's abstaining for that reason, for some legalism or some asceticism, then it would, the, the most helpful thing that he could do would be to go sit down and have a glass of wine. He's checking his heart here. And I would check yours in the same way. If you have the freedom of conscience to do that, how are you doing it and why? And if you're abstaining from it, same question. How and why? I think that's what it's getting at here. Let's continue, though. Paul's going to get back to, he made this aside. I don't think it's a complete aside. I think it's getting to that purity that he mentioned in verse 22. But now he's back to verse 24, this idea of laying on hands with haste and in the selection of elders. Look at verse 24. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. That's what he's saying there. The detection of sin and a faulty character is easy with some people. It's, it's, it's obvious. But in others, it's a subtle task. It's something that takes time. Getting back to the reason that you wouldn't lay on hands in haste. When he says lay on hands there, by the way, he just means ordain. You're laying hands on them, signifying that you've set them apart as a pastor, as an elder. And so we must be prayerful. We must be discerning. All right? Because we're pretty good at spotting gross sins, right? Like the ones that stick out to us, the ones that are obvious to us, we're pretty good at being like, that's sin. Like, clearly, that's, that's sin. But the subtle ones, the unseen ones, are even perhaps more damning because they reside in someone's heart, and, and, and it doesn't become obvious to us until they're in that place of leadership, that place, that office of pastor. 
So in, in other words, the, 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 there are two words that can summarize what Paul's saying right here in all of this, in these latter verses, in the selection of elders. You can write them down if you want. Really simple. Be careful. That's what he's saying. Be careful. Don't do it in haste. Don't be fooled by showy lives. Don't be uh, wowed by spectacular gifts of service because there could be, there's at least a possibility there's an evil heart there and you're not seeing it. And so be careful. Watch closely. Observe them closely. And so we honor our elders. We, 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 we protect our elders. We discipline our unfaithful elders. And we choose our elders wisely. So that, that's what the text is teaching us this morning. But I don't want to end there. I want to spend just a few moments. I know we're, we're, we're going long, but I want to spend a few moments thinking through because this is all really, really specific. Really specific to, to how we think about our pastors and our elders here at Poplar Spring. But I want to give us some practical applications, some takeaway that I think this text reminds us of. That the, the text uh, just brings back up for us as the people of God and gives us marching orders and gives us something tangible to hold on to. And so four of those real quick. Four reminders from this text. Number one, remember the glory of God in the church. Like, that gets at the why question, doesn't it? Like, why the Apostle Paul would spend all this time with all of these specifics, right? God is honored and the glory of God is on display when the church gets this right. That's why it's important. And even if these concerns seem trivial to us, even if these things, if you're sitting here like, man, I'm just ready to get to that pot, pot luck or that minute pot roast and, and go eat some lunch. Like these things may seem trivial to us, but they're not to God. Why? Because the church is precious to God. He calls it his wife, the wife that Jesus died to purchase for himself by his blood. That's how precious the church is to him. And so he's glorified. He's honored when we get these things right. And so we strive to do that. So remember the glory of God in the church. Second thing. Remember the consequences of ignoring God's word. This is a reminder to us that, 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 that there are consequences when we don't get things right that we've been commanded to do. If you go back through this text, and I'm not going to do it for the sake of time, but if you go back through verses 17 through 25 and notice the commands, the imperatives, the things that we're told to do, commanded to do, there are seven or eight, depending on how you read it. Uh, these are not suggestions, right? These are not goals for that the church should aspire to when they finally get good at all the other stuff. Right? These, are, these are not just things that a healthy church aspires to. These are commands. They're commands for us, just as much as any other command in Scripture. And God, when he says something, he expects obedience. And so, so we know the implications. Let me just spell this out for, for you if it's not clear enough. I say that, that God expects obedience to these commands Knowing the implications for my life and for Michael's life and for our elders' lives. Let me just spell that out for you. If I'm in sin, you must. If I'm in disqualifying public sin that's marring the, the character of, of Christ, then you must call me out on it publicly, church. Same thing for Pastor Michael. Same thing for our other elders. If they're living in public sin, persistent sin, you must call them out for it. That's not just like, well, that sounds cool. Like, no, you must do it. It's a command. Why? Because the beauty of Christ's church is worth it. Like that, That's what we're commanded to do for the health of his church, for the beauty of his bride. We can't sweep it under the rug. So we must do that. Number three, remember the goal in rightly ordering God's household. God's intention here is not that shepherds exploit sheep. God's intention here is not that sheep would abuse their shepherd. God's intention here is that pastors would lay down their lives to the flock, living among them, giving their lives to, to serve Christ's bride, lovingly, 
providing for them, generously caring for them by teaching them the word, by leading them in truth. And in turn, they generously and willingly submit to that leadership and provide for faithful pastors, faithful elders. And in this context, the gospel flourishes. Listen, hear me carefully. The end goal here is not that we'd have great interpersonal relationships. I mean, I think that comes as a a byproduct. The the goal here is not that we would have well-paid pastors. The goal here is not that we would have public rebukes. Like, all of those things are the outworkings of us doing this well and doing it right. The end goal is that we would display the gospel to a lost and broken world. And that happens when we strive to get this right. Fourth thing, remember the grace of God in the gospel. If we preach a sermon at Poplar Spring, no matter the topic, no matter the, the text, and we can't get here, we've done something wrong. So remember the grace of God in the gospel. We avoid the pitfalls of gossip. We avoid the pitfalls of allegations and, and, and suspicions when we remember the grace of God in our lives. And we foster this sort of environment of love and forgiveness and unity among those who are leading with those who are being led as we remember the gospel and the grace that was brought to us. The good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that every one of us were sinners, and that he went to the cross and he took that that record of debt, Colossians says, that was against us and was opposed to us, and it was nailed to the cross. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, so were your sins. That's what was done for us. And And he rose from the dead, as we sung earlier today, to prove to you that that is the case that your sins can be forgiven. That grace is the grace that saved us, and it's that grace that will enable us to do this well that we've been commanded to do in 1 Timothy 5. And so that, that, that the gospel doesn't end there, right? That you're, you're born again, good, you've got your golden ticket to heaven. Gospel. I know the gospel would say that you need this gospel every day to deliver you from self-centeredness, to deliver you from, it's from, from a desire for shameful gain, to deliver you from uh, laziness or, or a sense of entitlement. You need the gospel daily working in your life, and I need it daily working in my life. And so would you ask for that today? If you're here and you're a believer, just ask the Lord and, and say, genuinely say, God, anything that you're going to convict me of today, anything that you're going to bring to my heart and my attention today, I, I'm going to repent of. Make that promise to him and ask him to search your heart today. We need the grace of God in our lives individually and as a body to get the household of God right. Let's pray together.